You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, friends, we are in the middle of a sermon series uh, here at Midtown called Christianity Uncomplicated. And we are going through this ancient statement of faith called the Apostles' Creed. It's something that billions of Christians have affirmed for thousands of years as the core of our faith. And one reason we're going through it is because we know that when we use spiritual language or Christian language, it can sometimes be confusing for us. What do we mean when we say what we say? And so we want to explore these core tenets of the faith so that all of us can understand, regardless of the extra stuff that often gets heaped onto faith, what the core of this thing is. And so I'm going to invite you uh, to start our time together. If you are someone who would call yourself a Christian, Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand and read this Apostles' Creed with me today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Uh, And friends, if you're someone who's not sure where you're at on your spiritual journey, you're trying to figure out this Christianity thing, Uh, You're so welcome here, and we hope that this series is helpful for you as you are navigating what it means uh, to follow Jesus in your own life in this season. Uh, Most people in America today uh, would call themselves spiritual people. Poll after poll gets released year after year, and regularly the religious landscape of America includes people who say, well, I may not be religious, but at least I'm spiritual. A majority of people say that. And that's true in these polls, but that's also true if you just go out to your neighbors and your friends. If you have conversations with them, most of them would say, oh yeah, I'm I'm spiritual. And yet, many of those people mean very different things when they say they're spiritual. They have a different understanding of what spirit means in the first place. Some people, for instance, think spirit is something like this here. Some sort of internal spiritual force that we can tap into. And so they build practices in that send them further into themselves to help discover what truth and reality is inside themselves. Some other people think of spirit something like this. Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? Even people who wouldn't call themselves religious tend to affirm at least the existence of some sort of spiritual realm, and they tend to call those things ghosts. In the UK, one of the least religious countries in the world, there's a large quantity of people who still say, I believe in ghosts. Fascinating, right? Some people think that when they hear spirit. Some people think this when they hear spirit, Uh, which is an entirely different thing altogether, right? But I bring this up because... There's actually great ambiguity. When we say that we're spiritual and we use a word like spirit, there's great ambiguity out there in our world. If you get 10 Americans in a room and ask them to define spirit, they'll give you like 12 different answers. And so when we come into a church like this and sing words about the spirit or say things like the Holy Spirit, it can sometimes be more confusing than clarifying for us because we're carrying in all of these extra definitions, all these different things that the world is saying. And our hope in this series is that we can better understand this language when we use it as Christians, because Jesus and the scriptures are actually 
will give us a lot of clarity on what the Spirit is, how the Holy Spirit works, and how we can know that Spirit. It's not as ambiguous as the world makes it seem. And so today, we're going to look at the next statement in the Creed that we as Christians affirm. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We're going to examine what that means for us as Christians. And I think there's no better place to find out what that means than the words of Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the Gospel of John. This is the fourth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Uh, We're going to be reading from John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. We'll read through 20 and then skip ahead to 25 and 26 as well. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's actually some on the table. Those are our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible on your own. So if you need one, grab one on your way out. Uh, You can go and pick one up. There's no shame in grabbing it now if you'd like to follow along. We're going to have the words on the screen behind me as well. John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, skipping forward to verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Friends, these words, which may have been highlighted red in your Bible, the reason they're highlighted red is because they actually come from the mouth of Jesus. These words were spoken by Jesus to his disciples on his last day on earth. Many scholars call this the upper room discourse. It's a time when he got together with his closest followers and friends during a Jewish celebration called Passover in order to tell them some really important things that he had to say to them. And think about it. If you knew that you were going to be dying tomorrow, right, and you wanted to get your closest friends, your closest followers together, the people who you love the most, what would be the sort of things you'd talk about? Right? The weather? The NBA Finals? How in the world the Suns lost in the second round of the NBA Finals? How did that happen? No, you probably wouldn't spend your time talking about those sorts of things, right? Those are a little more trivial for your last day. You'd probably devote a lot of time to the most important things that you have to say, the things that are most crucial for them to know. Friends, when my dad passed away when I was in high school, he and I had a conversation. It wasn't the day before he passed away, but it was a couple weeks, and it was very similar to this. My dad had a lot to say to me about the most important things in life about what it means to be human, about how we can live a true and lasting life, about how I can love and care for my family. That is what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to communicate the most important things to his disciples. And in chapters 14, 15, and 16, he keeps talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus seems to think that this is a really big deal. This is really important for Christians to know and have a grasp on. And it's here in chapter 14 that we hear three things that Jesus is doing, describing the Spirit. He tells us who the Spirit is, he tells us what the Spirit does, and he tells us how we can know that Spirit in our lives. Who the Spirit is, what the Spirit does, and how we can know the Spirit. So first, who the Spirit is. Any uh, Star Wars fans in the house? People streaming Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yeah, don't look around. It's okay. It's okay. You can raise your hand. There's no shame in liking Star Wars. They're like, is this church, is this this okay for me to say this? 
No, Star Wars. It's a fun series, a lot of amazing themes. If you're not a huge Star Wars fan, that's also okay. Uh, but there's this idea in uh, the center of the Star Wars universe. It's called the Force. And the Force is this mysterious energy that binds all of life together. And in Star Wars, it's an impersonal force. And it actually can be tapped into by good people and evil people for their purposes. They tap into the force. The force does not necessarily have a direct purpose or an end game in things. The force is used for good and for evil. The Jedi and the Sith are these kind of dueling forces uh, that are using this idea of the force in their lives. And many of us, when we think of spirit, when you hear that word, we often carry some of these kind of Star Wars assumptions. We think of the spirit a lot like the force. It's this kind of indifferent, unknowable, ethereal, and ambiguous thing always around us. And if we really try hard, if we really pray really hard, if we really meditate really hard, then we maybe might just be able to tap in to the spirit. But that's actually way different than what Jesus is describing about the spirit here. He doesn't picture something at all. He actually pictures someone. He sees the spirit as a person, this deeply personal, intimately knowable, and actively involved person of God that is at work in the world and that we can walk with in our day-to-day lives, that we can know intimately. His language says this over and over. Verse 17, he uses personal pronouns to describe the spirit. He doesn't call the spirit it. He says he and him over and over. And he's not gendering the spirit. That's not Jesus' goal here. What he's trying to say is that this is a personal and knowable person of God not an ambiguous it force around us. The Holy Spirit is personal, according to Jesus. And then in verse 16, he says that this Holy Spirit will be another advocate. We'll talk about the word advocate and what that means in a sec, but I want to actually focus on the word before that because it can kind of sneak in and we can overlook it. The word another. What does another imply? It implies that there was one that came before that's just like this one, right? There's another advocate. Jesus is saying here that there's uh, another advocate that came before the Spirit, and the Spirit is just like this advocate. So who's the one that came before? Well, thankfully, in the New Testament, we hear about another advocate. Any guesses on who that is? Jesus. You can say it loud and proud. If you say Jesus in a church, you're probably going to have the right answer at some point, right? Jesus is the one who's described as the advocate all over the New Testament. And so what he's saying here is that the Spirit is another advocate. He's of the same nature as Jesus. He's equating this spirit of uh, the same nature as himself. And he doubles down on that later. Look at verse 18. He says, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. That should strike us as weird because this whole conversation he's having with his disciples is about him leaving. That's why he's doing this. He wants to share with them because he knows he's about to die. And yet he says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming to you. That's weird, right? How, How can Jesus be coming and going? Which is it? When I was young, my parents used to tell me my brother and I would run in and out of the house and never would, like, pick one spot to stay for very long. So the AC would be pumping. It's 110 degrees. Like, come on, are you coming or are you going? Which is it? You can't be in two places at once. Are you coming or are you going? It's confusing for us to think about the physical Jesus both coming and going, and yet that's what Jesus says is happening. How? Well, it's because he and the Spirit are of the same nature. And the Spirit, when it comes, is arriving in our lives. I have a friend of mine who describes the Holy Spirit Uh, with a funny phrase that I don't think is perfect, but it works. Portable Jesus. (laughs) The Holy Spirit arrives in our lives as the same nature as this Jesus, the same advocate. And remember what Jesus said about his nature. Jesus, all over his ministry, affirms that he is the God of the universe, come in the flesh to bring life and restoration to all things. 
That's his job. That's what he did. That's his identity. So Jesus equates himself with God, and everything he did indicated this to the people around him. When he performed miracles, when he healed the blind, when he fed the hungry, when he forgave sins, it was all telling us, this is God, come to bring life. So repent and be a part of what God is doing. That's Jesus' message. And so Jesus says he's the same as God, and Jesus also says that the nature of Jesus is the same as the Spirit as well. And so we learn that the Holy Spirit is personal and that the Holy Spirit is of the same nature as Jesus, who's of the same nature as God. And it's here that it can start to break our brains a little bit, trying to think about how this works, right? So we've got God, and then we've got Jesus, and we've got the Holy Spirit. What's going on, right? What's happening here? This is a divine and sometimes confounding reality that we as Christians call the Trinity. The scriptures affirm this, and the church history has affirmed this for thousands of years, the Trinity. And there's an important note when we talk about the Trinity. We're not talking about three different gods. It's a, a crucially important thing. These are not gods that are separate from one another. Jesus' words himself, he said, I and the Father are one. And then he says that this spirit is of the same nature as him. So they're all somehow mysteriously one. He's articulating that God is one nature revealed to us in three distinct persons. And I do think that it's worth at least trying to spend some time wrapping our minds around it, knowing fully well that we can't fully grasp what this reality of God is. So I've got a quick graphic that I want to share with you guys to describe the Trinity. Uh, this is a two-dimensional uh, plane here. Now, look what happens. You can see there's a three-dimensional shape. Look what happens when we put that three-dimensional shape in the middle of the two dimensions, right? We can tell from our current perspective, from this three-dimensional perspective, that that's a three-dimensional shape, one shape. But look what happens when we shift to a two-dimensional perspective. This one shape all of a sudden turns into one, and then, well, it can turn into two, and then even three. That one shape, when it moves through the two-dimensional space, can be viewed a variety of different ways. It can be experienced differently from a two-dimensional perspective. The scriptures are indicating that our experience of God works kind of like this. God is this transcendent being, 3D, that goes beyond our 2D human capacity to fully grasp, to fully comprehend. And yet, that 3D God has communicated to us in the 2D space has come into the world and told us about himself, lived, he became flesh so that we could understand him in our two dimensions. And so the way that God moves through our two-dimensional space is in this way that we call the Trinity, as God the Father, as God the Son, and as God the Holy Spirit. And we can know that one God in these different ways from our 2D perspective. All right, it's a lot of work up here, I know, but hopefully that helps at least get a little bit of, of grasping around this idea, the oneness and the Trinity all being together. So, to wrap up, what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God, the nature of God that is distinct from the Father and the Son. And Jesus says in this chapter that that very essence of God, that very nature of God, will come to those who choose to trust in Jesus. So what does that look like, right? What does it look like? What does the Spirit do when it comes into our lives? And thankfully, Jesus tells us here as well. So that's the second point. What does the Spirit do? Jesus mentions a few different things here. He mentions in verse 18 that the Spirit will abide in us, will be in us, which is a remarkable claim. Those of us who've been raised Christian are used to this idea of like God residing in us. That's a really crazy thing, you guys. This is a remarkable thing that the very nature of God, the divine, is able to personally reside in our midst. That is a radical claim. 
In other parts of scripture, the spirit of God is depicted as being uh, the one who brings life to all things. At the beginning of the scriptures, we learn that uh, everything, the, the cosmos, is formless and void. That's the language that in our English scriptures we use to describe the universe. Formless and void doesn't really sound like a place you want to hang out, right? It's dark. It's like an abyss. There's nothing to it. Life does not exist. And then we learn about the spirit of God that comes and brings life to that place. The spirit of God is the life bringer. And apart from the spirit, there is no life. If the spirit's not there, life doesn't exist. The psalmists pick this up. They talk about regularly that where the spirit of God is, there's life. And where the spirit of God isn't, there's not life. And so this spirit, this life comes into chaotic, disordered situations. Situations where life doesn't seem to exist and brings true, lasting beauty and goodness and order and creation. That's what the Spirit of God does. That's what Jesus is saying can abide in us. This powerful presence of God that brings life to all things that are broken, that brings life to all things that are disordered and chaotic. And here's why that's really important, you guys. If the Spirit is that, if the Spirit brings true life to chaos and disorder, we need it. Because we live in a world that is chaotic and disordered. We come into this room with chaos and disorder already infringing upon us all the time. Anxiety, depression, insecurity, loneliness, chronic pain. And we also know that out there is a world of chaos and disorder all the time. We keep seeing it over and over in the headlines. How are there more shootings? How is there more violence? How is there so much chaos out there? Violence and oppression and hunger and poverty, it's disorder and it's chaos. And every single one of us is trying to find a way through that to life. Every one of us. We're trying to navigate our own day-to-day and see where can I find the source of life? Where can I find the real, lasting source of life? And we do that in a variety of ways. In America, we love to do that through career. Climb the corporate ladder, find your job, find your purpose, as some local institutions like to say, the one that I went to, so... We love to help people find their purpose, find their vocation eventually, right? And we think that that will will really solve this problem for us, that chaos and disorder will be solved by me finding my career or or path. Some of us think we can do that in relationships, right? We're just dying to get with that one person or uh, we're, we're really longing to get the right group of friends around us. We think that those things will give us true lasting life. In our world right now, a big thing for people is pursuing sexuality. What is my sexuality? Because if I can find the right sexual preference, if I can find the right orientation, then I can find true and lasting life in the middle of disorder and chaos. For some people, it's just comfort. It's money. We, we pursue all sorts of things. We're all trying to answer the question, what is true life really like, and where do we find it? And the reason that we're all on that search, friends, is because each of us in our own way have rejected the life that we were made for. And we're longing to try to find it on our own terms. At the start of things, God creates all things and gives them life, which means he's the one who defines what life looks like. And we've said, cool, we'll take your life and define it on our terms instead. And I'm going to chase after whatever I want because I think I can define this better. And the result is the broken world that we live in. The result is chaos and disorder that keeps infringing upon us. That's why we can get the very thing that we think will bring us life and it doesn't satisfy us. Have you felt that in your life? You get the thing that you thought was going to make it. You marry the right person. You get the right job. You move up the corporate ladder, and you're like, I'm still kind of broken. I'm still kind of messed up, and the world's still kind of messed up. 
And what our world tells you is, well, you gotta, you gotta get one more thing, right? Just get the next thing. And it becomes this constant hamster wheel of us pursuing things that can never fully satisfy, looking for true life in all the wrong places. And that's because, friends, we as humans are all human and yet failing to be fully human. We're all failing to live the humanity that we were designed to live. And deep down, we know it. We know it. If you really pause, if you really reflect, if you get off the hamster wheel for a second, you start to realize that you're longing for true humanity, for true life to come. That's why you get frustrated when people don't treat you well because they're not living their true humanity. That's why you get frustrated when there's injustice in the world because we are not living our true humanity. That's why you lay in your bed at the end of the day with malaise and dread creeping in on you because you know you're longing for true life. That deep inner longing for satisfaction that we feel, for true life that we feel, it's the result of us having rejected true life and trying to define it on our own terms. And we're never gonna get there. Friends, when we seek life in things that perish, we'll never find it. Instead, we'll be constantly consumed by dread that those things are eventually going to go away, that they can't actually fulfill us. None of our pursuits are actually bringing us satisfaction. That's why C.S. Lewis says in his great book, Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were. We are. True and lasting life, that thing that we're all scrambling for in the middle of the disorder and chaos, it can only come when we have unity with the one who gave us life in the first place. When we are reunified with the God who formed us. And when we allow his creation to dictate our lives. When we allow him to shape us. Friends, Jesus' message for us is that that God has actually come into the world so that we could have life. That God has stepped into the midst of history and is inviting us back to the life that we were made for. God is on a mission to reunify us with him through Jesus by the Spirit. And so when Jesus tells us and tells his disciples here that the Spirit abides in them when they receive him, he's saying that this is the unrestricted presence of true life that can come into our day-to-day and shape us little by little into the people we were made to be that can start to fulfill that longing in us now and into eternity, that we don't have to stay on the hamster wheel any longer because the Spirit of God, which is the source of true life, can come and live within us. We can know that Spirit. We can be formed by that Spirit into the people we are made to be. So that's what the Spirit does. It abides. But Jesus goes into a little more detail. He doesn't just say it abides because that's still a little ambiguous. He starts to say what the Spirit does when it abides. He mentions that the Spirit is an advocate The Spirit advocates for us. And this is a pretty multifaceted word. It can mean lawyer, it can mean comforter, it can mean counselor, it can mean friend. It's used uh, in the scripture in a lot of those ways. So what is Jesus indicating there? What's he saying about the Spirit? He's saying that in the Holy Spirit, we have someone that is at work advocating for what brings true life and revealing to us what is failing to bring true life. That's the job of a good friend, right? When we say that the Spirit is a friend of ours, We say that they actually speak into our lives, that they comfort us, that they console us, that they encourage us, but that they also challenge us when things are off. That's what a good friend does, right? A good friend is not just someone that high-fives you about everything you do. A good friend is able to identify when things are messed up, when something in your life is going wrong, when there's a bad habit or a thought or an inclination, and they'll call you out on it. 
because they're a good friend and because they want to lead you back to the truest version of who you are, to the truest life that you were made for. It's similar to what a lawyer does, right? A lawyer is responsible for communicating truth. And in order to do that well, many lawyers have to expose lies, right? That's part of a lawyer's job is to expose the lie that's getting told in the courtroom. And so the Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit challenges us where we need to be challenged. It exposes lies when they're lies. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do that out of shame. The Holy Spirit does that because it wants to lead us back to life. God wants to lead us back to life. There's a, a pastor friend of mine. His name's Matt. And he tells a pretty good story, I think, that describes what this looks like, how the Spirit does this in us. Uh, he has a, a kind of chore regimen he and his wife do for their family. And uh, their son is responsible for vacuuming. Every Saturday, he vacuums the whole house, just kind of clean. It's part of the chores that they do. And uh, one day, uh, he noticed the son was playing video games on a Saturday and hadn't yet vacuumed. So he said, hey, video games are great. You can play, but can you vacuum first? And his son kind of did the, yeah, fine. And he, like, drags himself over to the vacuum, and he starts the vacuum. And Matt is in the kitchen preparing some food, and it's maybe 40 seconds before the vacuum turns off. And son's like, I'm done, vacuum the house. Matt's like, did you? Let me, come with me. Let, me, let me walk with me as I look around the house. And the first room they walk into, there's carpet on the ground, and it looks like somebody dumped goldfish and then tap danced all over them. Just crumbs everywhere. And so Matt tells his son, hey, does this look vacuumed? And the son's like, no, I, I missed it, right? That's what his son's, oh, I, I must have missed that. And so he continues to walk through the rest of the house with his son and show him all the areas that still need to be vacuumed. Guys, the Holy Spirit is constantly taking us around our inner lives and the lives around us and asking us, does that look vacuumed? Does that look like life? Is that actually the life that you were made for? Is that goodness and beauty and truth and love? And if it's not, let's vacuum it up. Let's do this together. The Spirit leads us into that. It doesn't do that out of shame. It does that because it wants a clean house. It wants the best possible version of life for us. The Spirit moves in this way. You guys, we all have stuff that needs to be vacuumed up. I got stuff that needs to be vacuumed up. I don't know what it is for you. You carry something in this room that you know needs to be vacuumed up. You're thinking of it right now. Maybe it's envy over someone else. Maybe it's disdain or anger that you have toward a coworker or a boss. Maybe it's just a longing to do something that you know you shouldn't do, right? Whatever it is for you, there's things that need to be vacuumed, and the Holy Spirit is here to say, hey, let's vacuum it up together, because I want you to have true life, not the thing that's robbing you of life here and now. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just abide. When it abides, it advocates for us. It helps us clean our house. And there's a third thing that Jesus mentions here that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Notice in verse 25 and 26, he says that the Spirit points to Jesus he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Jesus said a lot of things to his disciples, right? And it turns out he did remind them because we still have them. The disciples wrote these things down, right? The Holy Spirit worked in them to communicate who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and how that can get to the rest of the world. And Jesus is implying here, the Holy Spirit will always draw us closer to Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's always a pointer to Jesus. There's a... a New Testament scholar named Dale Bruner who talks about this. He calls the, the Holy Spirit the quietest member of the Trinity because it's always pointing beyond itself to Jesus. It's always pointing us back to the life that Jesus came to provide for us. And so the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus, helps us learn from Jesus, makes us like 
Jesus, reminds us of Jesus' love and grace, and reminds us of the importance of proclaiming that grace to the world. You guys, we can't underestimate the power that the Spirit has to do this. Every time that you open your Bible and you're wowed or amazed or convicted by something that Jesus does, that's the Holy Spirit at work wowing you, saying, this is amazing. Have you seen this? Every time that you have this deep feeling during worship or during a sermon, this deep part of you that's somehow connecting to God in one way or another, that's the Spirit pointing you back to Jesus, saying, look at how amazing this Jesus is. Look at how life-changing this Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is constantly teaching us about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what that means for us. And every moment, the Spirit is inviting us to return to that reality, to return to Jesus. And if you don't believe me, stop throughout your day, spend five minutes reading a passage of Scripture. Slow down and just take a second to pray. Stop what you're doing. Stop the hustle of the hamster wheel. Get off and reflect And many times you will find the Holy Spirit is at work deep within you, drawing you nearer to Jesus, amazed by who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And because this is true, because the Spirit is always pointing to Jesus, that means that we can honestly know when the Spirit's at work and sometimes when it's not, right? If you get a feeling that the Holy Spirit is working in you to go someplace or to do something and it doesn't align with what Jesus would want, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's something else. Right? That's maybe an inclination that I'm projecting onto God, but it's, if it doesn't align with the character and person of Jesus, then it's not the Holy Spirit. They're of the same nature. And so a great question to ask, if we think the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, we ask, well, does that inclination, does that idea, does that thought sound and look like Jesus? Does that seem like Jesus? And if it does, we can be confident that that's the Holy Spirit at work, moving us closer to Jesus, drawing us deeper into his love. So the Spirit is the personal presence of God in our midst. And the Spirit abides in us, advocates for us, points to Jesus. Sounds great, right? I can get off the hamster wheel? That's awesome. How, how do I get this? How does this work? How do I receive the Spirit in our midst? Thankfully, Jesus makes it clear to us as well. That's the third point, how we can know the Spirit. Question for you. Who's Jesus speaking to in this passage? Anybody know? Disciples, his disciples. Who is he saying will receive the Holy Spirit then? His disciples, right? The people who have committed themselves to following Jesus, who have said, I will receive your love and forgiveness and choose to give my life to you. And so it seems pretty clear that we can know and experience the Holy Spirit when we become disciples of Jesus, when we decide to say that the forgiveness and love and grace of Jesus is something that I need. And when we allow that to start to shape everything we do. And that happens in a couple different ways. First, it always happens individually, friends. This is true. Jesus calls each one of those disciples individually in their own space, in their own place. He says, hey, you, Matthew, you, Peter, come, follow me. He calls each and every one of you in this room individually, wherever you are with your specific skill sets, wherever you are in your particular spiritual journey, Jesus is wooing you, is calling you. And he's not wooing you and calling you because of how impressive or special you are, and you actually don't have to be impressive or special to follow him. It's an important thing. Many times we think that to become a disciple of Jesus is like, whoa, well, I got to get my life together a little bit, right? I got to make sure to present the right picture of myself to Jesus and then say, look how put together I am. Now I can disciple you. It's actually not how Jesus calls his disciples. And all along the way, they struggle. Three years in, Peter still denies Jesus straight up, right? That still happens. So discipleship is not about how put together I am. Discipleship is about our willingness to acknowledge that we need Jesus, 
and that we can't find true life on our own. And then to allow Jesus to shape everything we do. That's what discipleship looks like. And a great example of this is in two of the disciples, Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas both deny Jesus. And one of them, Peter, believes and acknowledges that, well, he needs the forgiveness of Jesus, and he returns to Jesus, and he receives it, and he becomes a cornerstone of the church. He gets the Spirit to come into him, and then in Acts 2, the passage we just read to start our time together, preaches an amazing sermon that convicts and powerfully brings the life of Jesus to thousands of people. That's 50 days after he denied Jesus. You guys think about that? 50 days, and the Spirit is using Peter to bring life to people. All because he said, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And I believe that you can bring that to me. And I'm willing to trust that and allow you to shape my life. Judas, on the other hand, after he denied Jesus, didn't come back to Jesus. He didn't return. He didn't believe that this God could actually forgive him for that. He was so wrecked with guilt that he died a lonely and terrible death. Neither of these men were particularly more impressive than the other one. Both of these men denied Jesus. The one who is used by Jesus and becomes this amazing disciple in the other church is the one who acknowledges they've messed up. The one who acknowledges and receives that forgiveness and then allows Jesus to shape them from there. And so true life in the spirit, friends, comes when each of us individually realizes that, turns back to Jesus. But it's not just an individual thing. Discipleship is also a community thing. This is kind of subtly communicated here. Notice Jesus regularly refers to the disciples using the word you. And when we think you, we often just think individual. But the way Jesus is using it here is actually talking about y'all. He's using it in this bigger way. And y'all is not something we often say in our, like, non-Southern context, right? But it's actually a really helpful word. Y'all, you, plural, right? He's saying that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and shapes a community of people who embody his love to the world. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes to all these individuals. They come together, breaking social boundaries that otherwise might divide them, and then they become a community that brings the life of Jesus to the world around them. You guys, when we receive the Spirit, we become part of a community of people who have also received the Spirit and who are also allowing Jesus to shape them every day. And that community can do powerful things. Jesus had a much smaller group than the people who are in this room, and he changed the world with those people. He had 12, and even one of them fell off. He had 11, and then they had to fill in the 12, right? If he could change the world with those people, he can do an incredible amount with this room right here, with this place right here. When the church does its job, friends, it becomes an oasis of life in a world that's racked with chaos and destruction and disorder. It heals pain, it removes shame, it lifts the lowly, it advocates for the oppressed. By the Spirit, this church becomes a radical picture of true, lasting life in a world that desperately needs it. That's the job of the church. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend a little bit more time on that topic, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints, what we mean when we say those phrases. But one thing we can be sure, those communities are always formed by the Spirit. It's no accident that immediately when the Spirit comes into our lives, it forms a community in the scripture. It builds a group of people. So when we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, we're not just intellectually ascribing to an idea. We're actually saying that we believe in a personal God that can come into our lives and start to shape us and change us. We're saying that we have an advocate. We're saying that we have uh, someone who always points us to Christ. 
All of that is available for us. And we're saying that we have a new community, a new family that transcends any divisions that exist out there. And so the question actually for us, it's pretty simple at this point. The nice thing about the creed is it provokes questions. Do I believe in the Holy Spirit? Do I really believe? And not just intellectually. Do I really trust that this is true? Am I willing to rest in this reality and allow it to shape everything I do? That's what real belief looks like. It involves action. Are we willing to participate in a community of people who can embody this belief together? Will we, friends, in this room, decide, leaving this place, that we affirm these powerful words, that we believe in the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Let's pray.